Welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. Today, Matt welcomes Buffalo native Devin Mullen, the creative mastermind behind Anxious Kids, formerly Anxious Kids Make Good People. Though previously a guest on the Crash Chords podcast in episode 141, Devin arrives on Autographs to chat about his exciting work as a professional sound engineer, and his recent tenure in the Big Apple to work on the sets of The Joshua Show, episode 2, and The Flatiron Hex. He also chats about his latest album under the Anxious Kids banner, titled Honestly, and how his writing has evolved since his last appearance. And so, from his writing process, to his favorite tracks, and his third life as an author recently penning the novel The Parable Life, here's presenting Matt Storm and Devin Mullen. And welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and my guest this week is the one and only Devin Mullen, who I met through... Uh, co-host of the Crash Chord podcast and producer extraordinaire for the entire site, Steve Nagel. Devin, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, it's been a while since I've seen you last. You were still uh, uh, in college at the time. Yes. Finishing up school. At uh, SUNY New Paltz. Yes. And so you've been done with school for how long now? I'd say about two two years. Oh, awesome. And so now you, I remember the last time we spoke, you were, of course, you're a talented musician and you were a theater major and um, you're in New York now because you're doing... Um, audio production for shows in New York, right? Correct. There are two shows Mm -hmm. at Here Theater Company. They are called The Joshua Show, Episode 2, and The Flatiron Hacks. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about these shows? Absolutely. So the the Joshua Show is the sort of Pee Wee Herman styled... uh, There's puppets involved for both. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just about the contagiousness of joy. Oh, cool. It's it's very much so uh, geared towards children. Mm -hmm. Uh, There there are two performers in it. They're both lovely, Mm -hmm. charming people. Flatiron Hex is definitely geared more for adults. Mm -hmm. I would call it a trip in every sense of the word it's, okay. it's definitely got like a psychedelic influence it's film noir it's cyberpunk it's, cool it's about a shaman who's a plumber interesting and you said they both involve puppets yes excellent yes that's very cool i'm a big fan of, of puppeteering i grew up on the muppets and all that stuff so like shows oh. with puppets are, are a thing i really dig they're delightful um and so of course you're still uh making music under anxious kids yes um the shortened version of anxious kids make good people yes uh which is what the title of the band was um you just put out um a brand new uh ep called honestly right yes with a question mark yes Um, pronounced honestly honestly um which i think is definitely reflective of our current times both politically and otherwise for sure um, what I dig about this EP uh, is that it's still got the kind of folky acoustic flair that a lot of your previous work has had, but it sounds a little more, I'd say, focused. Um, for sure, it still has a lot of the dissonance that I think comes with your work, but it definitely feels like there's more, it feels like there's a more moderniza- modernization to it and uh, a heavily more modern influence. Um, what was the writing process like for this EP? Well, the, the writing process was sort of a, a re-examination of previous works. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you look back in the, my long and, you know, sort of questionable discography, <laughs> uh, you, you can see lyrics or, or musical phrases that exist back there, and I, I feel like this is the logical progression mm-hmm. in that. 
And you have some really like short songs on there too. Like I believe Cheater is only about a minute and a half. Yes. And very direct, um, very aggressive. Um, are, are these songs, especially a song like Cheater, are these coming from personal experiences that are fueling these a- songs? Absolutely. When I was uh, in my second year of college, I made this album called uh, Fistful of Yarn. Mm-hmm. I, I had had a you know, a cataclysmic breakup. Mm-hmm. I just felt torn in a million different directions. And the best way I could describe it was yeah, to make music about it was to grasp all these different strings right. that ran off in different directions. You know, the threads of our lives, a fistful of yarn. And you, you sort of grow away from the, the rawness of the feelings that you mm-hmm. have in a breakup as time passes. And I basically boiled down the essence of what I said in that entire album into an, a minute and 30 second song. It's very powerful and it's just interesting to me because at first it starts very kind of musical and and very it has a very fairly pop centric flow but as you you get more aggressive and the song gets more heated it gets more discordant as it goes which I think is a cool process of showing how like some wounds no matter how old can still be reopened especially if you sit with them oh a- bit. absolutely trauma trauma carries. Um, what was so the title of the album? Honestly, does that come from what I kind of surmised, like kind of the current state of either you or the world or both? Well, it's absolutely. I mean, you you look at uh, I don't know. You just look at everything around you, and it's kind of it's it's absurd. Yeah. I mean, we we live in an absurd political climate. We have you know literally you know Nazis in the streets. Yeah. But but it's also sort of a. Just sort of like a little poke at myself, like, I'm still doing this? Like, right. Honestly? Yeah. Really? And um, would you say that um, you've noticed a change in your writing style since you've graduated college and started, like, focusing on a, like, on a career and a day job and all that stuff? Yes. To to notice that, I I sort of have to put myself out of it for a little bit. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of like with people you grow up with. Mm-hmm. It, it all of a sudden occurs to you that yeah. a change has happened. You don't see it in process. Yeah. But... I mean, periodically, I'll I'll go back and I'll just you know listen to an entire album and be like, oh wow, that's okay. I'm doing I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. <laughs> um, and so, when writing this EP, did you find that like because I know we've talked about this before, but um, are you kind of a lyrics person and kind of come up with an idea and content first and then put music to it, or is it the other way around? It it depends on the song. Uh, I journal. Uh, compulsively. Okay. I, I have four journals going currently when I'm commuting. All paper, to work. all paper journals. All paper, paper journals, and I, I, you know, I type stuff up mm-hmm. uh, constantly. So the it just whatever serves the song best. Right. Whatever, whatever the point of it is. And you kind of take the process from there. Yes. Um, have you? So you said you have four journals going currently. I imagine you have a few. Things you've wrote that have not been put to music yet. Oh, abs- absolutely. I've, I have, I don't know, hundreds of sheets and of you lyrics. Just find, at this do you point. find yourself going back to these lyrics and seeing what works and what doesn't? Have you found like, have you had an experience where something didn't work for a very long time and then recently it functioned more usefully? Oh, ab- absolutely. Sometimes things they just sort of click oh, yeah. for whatever reason. Like you, you get the melody or you, you, there's an inflection that you add that maybe you didn't have before and it just for whatever reason, makes everything work. And you're allowed... I guess taking time to step back from it also helps with that. Like, if you wrote something a few years ago and you couldn't do anything with it, and then looking at it now, you can kind of see it with a different perspective. Absolutely. Um, uh, Clearly, you're... you're, 
your writing style and your your musicianship leads towards guitar and a lot of guitar work. Do you write the music for these songs on guitar? Are you piano trained as well? Uh, I'm I'm not piano trained. I I've learned how to play it for two years when I was ages like six to eight. Mm-hmm. So I I wouldn't say that's <laughs> you know a major a major influence right now. Uh, yeah yeah a lot of it is just uh, almost. But organic. It, yeah. It, you playing guitar, just singing, and you, you wait until everything sort of coalesces, coalesces into yeah. uh, what you know passes for a song. Um, what I really like about the the new EP also that I noticed is that you do a lot of harmonizing with yourself, high and low. And does that come naturally through creating the song, or do you hear it and feel like something's missing, missing, and then kind of add the harmonies? A, a lot of times when I'm making songs, I use just additive mixing. So oh, yeah. I'll, I'll throw a lot of layers in and then sort of carve it out. Gotcha. What it's going to be. And so like start with quite a bit and then see what works and what doesn't and pull things out. Right, right. Just play around with it. It's 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 supposed to be very... Like my, my music's definitely at times depressing to listen to, but mm-hmm. I think there's a, a playful process of creation with it. Sure. Well, yeah, and I get a sense that even though some of the songs may have sad content or or depressing content, there's there's kind of an, there's definitely an enthusiasm in the in the performance and the um, and the portrayal of it. Um, like you get a sense. Um, the final track on the EP is a live track, and I get a, you really get a sense of your kind of stage presence with that live track. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what made you want to put a live track on this EP and where it was recorded? Sure. I recorded it actually in my uncle's basement. Oh, uh, wow. he, he's redone his basement as a studio. Oh, it's cool. for a band called the Karens. He's been in the uh, Buffalo music scene for a very, very long time at this point. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I wanted to put it on live is because I released uh, another album earlier this year, Terax and I Hello. Mm-hmm. And there was the last track on that was also uh, Winifred. Right, so that's yeah. the name of the song. The, the studio version? The studio version. And I wanted to see if making it live made it more more authentic, more more truthful to, to what the song is about. And something that really appealed to me, uh, uh, one of my biggest idols, Jeff Tweedy. Mm-hmm. Something I really enjoy about his vocal style and his songwriting is that he doesn't have this uh, obsession yeah. with perfection. There, there are tracks where his voice cracks or where he's not hitting the note or he sounds scratchy. And the fact that he's confident enough and you know believes in what he's doing enough to just put it out there anyway is, is, is very inspiring. So I, I wanted to emulate that a little well, bit. There's definitely a sense in that track of Winifred in the, in the rawness, especially in your vocals, because there are moments where the, 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 the chorus, which is just saying Winifred, uh, sounds more harmonic. And then there are times where it just kind of sounds a little discordant and like screechy. And I think... Adding that into a song gives a sense of emotion that sometimes a studio version where it maybe stays kind of samey doesn't quite portray. Right, and it's it's difficult when you hop into a studio because you have that conversation with your engineer. And yeah. They're, and their, you know, sort of MO is to make a polished, you know, you're, you're paying for their service. Sure, they're, of course. They, they, they don't want to mess around with it. They want it to be just so and have everything be balanced and... Which is fine, but right. it's but it's it's parameters for what the the song can be mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, have you been doing any live performance um, since we last saw you for Anxious Kids? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I've been playing a lot at this place called the Gypsy Parlor. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that in Buffalo? It is. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a cool place. There's like bras hanging from the ceiling and all these old vintage you know burlesque photos. Oh, and, that's awesome. Yeah, very cool. It's a great place. And uh, and so um, is there any hope to maybe play? 
play outside of Buffalo or go on any kind of a tour oh, or something? Touring, I would love to do. I right. think I think I need to, you know, break the triple digit mark yeah. on my Facebook follows. That, and, that's probably fair. Yeah, you know, you know. Sure. Unless I'm playing for like concerts for like five people. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear that actually a lot of more indie artists um, they do house shows. Like they'll reach out to states where they have friends and see if they can like book basements and, and living rooms and stuff, which I think is always a very cool way of trying to spread music around. But you also can kind of make it more intimate because if you're playing for your friends and their friends. It, it's a more intimate experience than just at some bar. No, I mean, truthfully, and you you definitely, if you're in that setting, you get the sense that people aren't there to sort of, you know, escape from reality. I mean, that's right. that's what a bar is. It's it's elevated reality. Uh, a house is just a house. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, so, um, doing... So, I have a curious question about... Because I know a lot of musicians who are producers and who you know, do songwriting and do uh, engineering and all sorts of stuff. Doing engineering for theater versus writing your own music, do you find that there's it's very different when you're behind? Because you produce a lot of your own stuff as well, right? Yes. And so do you find there's a big difference between doing it for the theater experience versus doing it for yourself? Absolutely. Uh, when you're doing it for theater, if, if you're not a sound designer, there are right. some pretty hard, fast simple rules to memorize right and, and basically no matter what show you're going into you're going to follow those rules and, right. and you understand what what the goal of your job is mm -hmm. when you're producing your own music um unless you're doing it for a strictly commercial purpose or mm -hmm. uh, for a specific event or if it, you know if it's tied to something else then that's a, a parameter but otherwise it's anything goes it can right. be anything it's more freeing I'd imagine yes um, and do you find yourself kind of breaking the rules as it were on your own music a lot oh ab absolutely I, I try to not not be easy to listen to right I, I try to be very very challenging to the listener and, mm. and sometimes antagonistic sure with the listener well I feel like especially in your earlier works like when you were first on the podcast and you brought the album that had come out at the time that I'm blanking on the name of um, Radio Fireflies it was, was Radio Fireflies that's right um, that album I felt that way and I think we talked about this on the podcast the first couple of listens I was like what am I listening to but as I sat with it I was able to find more and more and I find that's what I like about your music a lot is that you challenge the listener and, you know, everybody likes their fair share of pop music and easy to listen to music. Music that kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. Something easy to dance to. And, you know, those, I think that kind of music is important because that allows you to relax. But I think music that challenges you, like yours, is important also because uh, music, like any form of entertainment, I, you know, I feel should be dissected and should be looked at and, and analyzed. And, you know, easy to listen to music upon one listen you're like alright well I know how this works I'm kind of done whereas your stuff I find every time I listen to it I'm finding new interesting things and different layers and stuff and so I think that that it's a brilliant way to kind of write well, thank you um when you're writing a song to be antagonistic is it because you want to challenge the listener you want to off put the listener a little of both I I never want to uh put them off because then no one will ever listen to your music sure. but but I feel like a lot of where my songs come from are uh, very, very painful feelings, and it's right. sort of, it's sort of a tough thing because you can get very spectacular with it. You can do the sort of Lincoln Park thing where right. it's it's sort of a you know to reiterate a, a spectacle where yeah. we're suffering and angst is is sort of a celebration onto its own self. Right. And I'm I try to take a truthful look yeah. at these things, 
And it's it's an interesting medium to do it in because that's sort of counterpurpose to why a lot of people listen to music. Sure. People usually listen to music to, to feel good or yeah. to, to touch on some kind of emotion or to be romantic or to yeah. dance. Mine is meant to be listened to while you're you know walking to work yeah while you're on the subway while while you're contemplating something sure well i think there's a an inherent rumination in your music and i think that's important i think emotional triggers for music shouldn't always be good i mean i think catharsis is important in music and i think there's a lot of catharsis in the heartbreak in some of your songs like uh, going back to a song like cheater off the new ep uh, someone who's been cheated on, I could see getting a lot of catharsis from that song and kind of just how vocal and expressive it is. You know, and I think that that's kind of a, a very important in music. And we lose a lot of that. A lot of with the, the romance songs or even like, like the, it's only because it's a recent example, but like this Taylor Swift, Katy Perry feud that's <laughs> happening, which I'll be honest, like I'm a fan of both their musics at times. I like, I think Taylor Swift is more talented just as a writer. Sure. Um, but like this whole feud you know, some of it is for publicity, but they're working out their own shit. And I think you get a sense of that in the spectacle of that music, just the same way the lack of spectacle in your music, you, you get the sense that you're working out something and someone listening to it could also be working something out. I mean, I feel like that's, you know, sort of necessary for most musicians. I feel like their their creative process serves as a kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For sure. Um, is there any kind of music you'd want to branch out to try that you've never done before? Like anything outside of this kind of folk experimental music that you're doing right now oh absolutely i'm i'm very i've been heavily listening to sly and the family stone recently nice. really want to get into funk jazz yeah. uh and er, late 70s early 80s punk like joy division sure joy division is one of those bands that like i didn't realize how much i knew of their discography until i went back and listened to it the sneaky yeah it's like they just <laughs> snuck in and stuff and same with sly and the family stone i think for them it's because of my dad my dad has a huge vinyl collection i grew up listening to all sorts of music but like I would go back to bands like that, or even more popular bands like Queen. Like I thought I only knew their greatest hits, and then I went back through all their albums and went, "Oh, I know all of these songs." It's because you just kind of hear them over the years. And and the cultural perception is always telling you you only know these songs. Right. Um, would you say that a lot of these older bands are, are an influence on your writing style now? I, I would say far more than contemporary artists. For sure. Uh, like like with the Katy Perry Taylor Swift, so I've not paid attention to that right. in the slightest. It's right. Right. Sure. My radar, of course. Yeah, I mean, I like I don't have a choice. It's because of all the stuff I'm following in relation to Crash Chord. Like I just see this oh, stuff come yeah. up. But um, but yeah, do you find that you lean more towards older music? Because I have a, a lot of friends who do that. I mean, John, who's the co-host that you met last time you were here, he tends to talk more about older music. He likes newer stuff, but he tends to talk almost lamenting about older stuff. Do you find yourself kind of more li living with more classic music? I, I do, and a lot of it has to do just with the, uh, I feel like we've used this phrase a bunch, but like the, the process of creation mm -hmm. with it. I, I just picture these like, you know, gruff guys with like a cigarette hanging out of their mouth, glue and tape together, yeah. you know, in some dark studio. And nowadays it's, any anybody can make music. Yeah. It's it's so easy. Yeah. And it's it's... You have everything laid out in front of you, and it's, it's difficult to make a mistake unless you're careless or just don't care. Right. Um, and, yeah, I guess and, you're right. Yeah, like, with the older stuff, like, there was this level of detail because it was so handmade that doesn't really exist anymore. Right. It, it was more of a, a craft. Yeah. You know, it's making music now is almost like a game. I mean, you... And I would attribute, like, the, you know, the rise of uh, EDM as, as such a popular genre. Sure. As... as 
you know the creative process being that it's it's fun it's enjoyable you yeah. get to put all these different loops together and try out all these different effects and a lot of it uh, like with vaporware yeah none of it has any sort of uh physical tether yeah it's just you can do anything right yeah no yeah i get a sense of that like for me i've never been a musician like i played a little bit of guitar but for the most part it just wasn't nothing i could do i had more of a production year but when games like guitar hero and rock band came out like being able to live out that rock and roll fantasy and then now which is still pretty popular rocksmith which literally teaches you how to play guitar you mm -hmm. plug your mm -hmm. guitar into your computer and you can learn how to play guitar i think it's fascinating but you know that happens with all sorts of stuff i mean now that we have like narrative video games that are all storytelling and like choice making and less mechanics you know even you know i know a ton of writers who started on tv and sitcoms and movies and playwriting are now writing for video games and it's because i think technology is moving in a direction where you're right it feels like anybody can do it like i always say music has never been better than it's been now but also never been worse because because of the wide access the scales go both ways absolutely and so you can get this really great stuff that you may have never heard like you may not have been able to make music the way you are now without the modern technology but just the same there are plenty of people putting out stuff on youtube that just is almost unlistenable but there's an audience for it because people all there is a higher level connectivity i feel like oh yeah and, and there's um in the first world, at least, there's you know equal access for sure. Different things, which is which is fascinating to me. I think that you know there's this this idea that the the level of difficulty of wanting to do something really only you know really begins now with I want to do it, and then because of access, like I've been I've been podcasting for over five years, but the technology and the sound has gotten better and the quality has gotten better, but it was literally the will to want to do it that started it. And I think that's a modern first world thing that people take for granted a little bit. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I would attribute that to... Uh, well, I wouldn't attribute it to anything. I would just say it's it's funny. You look at these earlier musicians and you look at sort of their personal lives and the like drug sex and rock and roll and like right. how, how vice wasn't inextricably tied to yeah. music. And that's really not the case Nowadays, no, yeah. pe people are really, I mean, you know, you'll have people who are like really in this weed, like, yeah. you know, 420 blaze it every day, hashtag, hashtag, you know, whatever. <laughs> but you don't see like the, the coked up TV interviews. You don't see yeah. the, the rock and roll stars with the Swedish hookers on their arms, you know, <laughs> clad in fur and leopard print stuff. It's it's just not, and, and I think the reason that people were in those kinds of lifestyles was because it was infinitely more challenging to well, make sure. music. And well, and I think also there's this replacement, you know, it's chasing the high, and because of access and the ability to play live more and being able to even host live concerts from your own home on Facebook or whatever and live streaming, there's just, there are ways to get access and pursue in, in the public eye that didn't exist before. Like, Essentially, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the social media of the time. Oh, like, yeah. how did people know about you? Well, you were on the news because of a thing you did, or you were being interviewed for a thing you did. Whereas now, it's you can post constantly on your professional page, your private page, on Twitter, like what you're doing, where you are, what you're working on, give step by step. It's this access to finger quotes celebrity that I think has kind of shifted that. Like, now the drug is social media and that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, it's that dopamine cycle. Yeah. You get, you get those alerts, you get that dopamine going, you're happy, you're good. I mean, yeah, and as someone who mostly uses that stuff for marketing, I still get a sense of that. Like, when someone's retweeted a thing I've posted or liked a thing I posted, you know, it's the dopamine, and it's, it makes you want to go back into it and do more of it. 
which Absolutely. is interesting. Do you find that you get that kind of reward from your music, like uh, either on release or when you're recording it? Yes. I mean, I normally don't get uh, reception to most of my stuff is usually pretty low. I've, okay. I've, not, I've definitely not had anything that I would call a, a breakthrough or like right. you know. Uh, but but yeah, making it is the the most satisfying event in my life. Like sure. Releasing something, finishing it, yeah, and just putting it out there and seeing what happens. With the new EP and the new album that both came out this year, are you working on... I imagine you're constantly working on new music. Oh, absolutely. I'm already working on my next album. I figured. And so do you have a projected release for that one? or? Uh, you don't have to tie yourself down if you don't have one. I'm just always curious. I, I, I would think at the earliest it would be coming out winter of this year. Okay. Because it, it's funny because, you know, I remember when Steve told me that you had a, br a brand new full length out. You know, um, and then I went to check today, or not today, about a week from today, or earlier, to, to give that a listen and saw that there was another EP also. I was like, oh, wow, awesome. <laughs> like, do you find that you, I guess there's no sense of release for you. Like, it's when it's done, when it's finished, you release it. You don't plan for release schedules or anything, do you? Do you kind of oh, just wrap up a project and then put it out there? Pretty pretty much. I mean, I... Uh, I, I view the the again process of creating yeah as being a, a necessary appendage of myself. It it is necessary for for my existence. Sure. To create. If if I don't, I I don't know. It, it just wouldn't make sense to me. Um, have you thought about branching out to any other industries? I mean, now you I know you're doing uh, audio engineering and you've been doing that for a while. I know at one point you were doing acting back in when you were in school. Do you have any plan to return to something like that or? Um, I think you'd mentioned off air that you're working on a book, actually. Yes, yes, I'm working on a book. Uh, it's called working title, uh, yeah. Parable Prod or Parable Life. Uh huh. It's uh, it's a doozy of a book. I I'm trying to invert standard uh, ways of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest hallmark of the book is an intense focus on small moments, mm -hmm. sort of an expansion of them, like a like in like the pause in between when people are speaking and mm. what someone thinks in that pause. Okay. Subconsciously. Right, sure. Ever, everything that, you know, informs it. And then, you know, spans of, you know, three to four years will be covered in a couple pages. Wow. Interesting. The, the idea is I'm, I'm trying to write a book that's best absorbed, read out loud to oneself. Okay, very, very, uh, that, that's actually a really cool idea. Very, very specifically. Yeah. The the style of writing it's uh, it it jumps from place to place and mm -hmm. it's quick and it uses sort of non-standard turns of phrase uh, at times a highfalutin vocabulary. Right. Uh, the idea is just to make something a little a little different and again sort of challenging and a little bit antagonistic, something you can read again and again and again. And that's interesting. I think in the age of like the audiobook, that's actually a really great idea because something that's meant to be read aloud to yourself would also work very well audibly if someone was reading it to you, I feel like. Absolutely. And so I think that's actually a really great idea. And so have you always wanted to release a book? Is that something you've been working on for a while? Uh, well, the, the idea of releasing it, honestly, to me, was abhorrent about a year ago. Right. Even I... It's difficult for me. Once you put something in the arena of public perception, it yeah. becomes something entirely else right. than what it started you out You lose as. control over what the meaning is. Right. And and my work on, on that book is particularly precious. I, I, yeah. I guard it more than I do with my music. Uh, 
but I, I think it's it's a relevant book. It's, yeah. it's about how technology changes changes our lives. Yeah, uh, what what growing up in certain environments does to people, and it's it, the point isn't to condemn or make qualitative judgments on it. It's yeah. just saying this is what this person lives in. Yeah. You see it. You see the facts. Yeah. And however you feel about it, that's up to you. But, right. th- but this is truthfully what's going on. Right, sure. And I think it's important in this time to do that because we've lived with technology long enough that it seems like second nature to us, but it, it's not. You know, I, you know, I remember when I got my first computer. It was a compact Presario. It barely functioned, you know. <laughs> I remember trying to play an online MMO on dial-up. It was like watching paint dry. You well, know? Was it like Ultima? Or- it was uh, City of Heroes, City actually. Okay. Um, that and... And, uh, and uh, EverQuest. Oh my God, EverQuest. And so it's like, you know, whereas now it's like, I get impatient if a website doesn't load on my phone in 10 seconds. And it's like, back then, like you would sit and wait for a picture to load over 20 minutes. And, and just to loop it back to the discussion of music, that's that to me is the fundamental problem. We are sort of hitting a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. On, you know, it, it, it's like with TVs. I mean, how, how much more clear can they possibly be? I mean, you're going to you're going to hit a point where technologically. Yeah. In terms of our sensory perception of things. I mean, there, there are hard limits on what on what we can perceive and what we can sense. Yeah. And we're rapidly just in terms of information. There's yeah. far more information out there than any one person could reasonably expected to know. Yeah. Process. And the same thing with music. It's it's just getting better produced and more perfectly constructed. Yeah. So I think the answer to that, in order to keep things th- fresh and balanced, is sort of to swing in the opposite direction. Yeah. To deconstruct, to make things which are purposefully not polished, which are not well produced. Not not thoughtless, not cheesy, not, yeah. not Ed Wood B-movie sort of thing. Right. But to realize that that's, that's our humanity, the, yeah. the imperfect is human. Well, yeah, I remember when Blu-ray and like uh, 1080p TVs first came out, like trying to process watching, like, you know, for fiction, it was one thing. It didn't, you know, cartoons or whatever else, it was not a big deal. But watching shows like Law and Order SVU or, you know, any procedural, like and seeing how it moved almost felt unnerving to me, to the eye, because it looks so real that you're like, well, this isn't right. It shouldn't look this real. Where's, where's the grain? Which feels like a stupid thing to say because you want things to get better and better. But I remember having that kind of dissonance, which I don't see anymore. I think I've adjusted to it. But definitely in the beginning, there was the sense of what am I even looking at? And and that's the thing. That's, that's the future. That's going <laughs> to... I mean, k- kids coming up nowadays, they're... They have no idea. They're, they're going to be completely acclimated to this world we're living in, and they are going to be much better suited. Oh, for sure. To, to living in it. They're, they're not going to have that sort of, uh, not diaspora, but that, that disconnect. That, right. That, that clear sense of before and after. Yeah. It's just now. Yeah, and like for me, like as someone who grew up playing video games pretty much as long as I can remember, and going from 8-bit to 16-bit to what you know, whatever we're at now with modern gaming, like I almost find it I feel like such an old man saying this. I feel like I like <laughs> pixelated sprites and older looking games better because of the sense of nostalgia. Like Sonic Mania just came out, which is a brand new old school looking Sonic game, and I am so enthralled with it. Whereas, you know, some of the modern Sonic games stunk, but some of them are really good, and I find that I just I distance myself from that a little bit because I like what looks old 
because it's not perfect, I guess. Right, and and there are a lot of people, you know, sort of playing to that, not not in a pandering way, not in an exploitative way, but uh, people who are conscious of that and share that. I mean, a, a great example would be Undertale. Sure, I mean, yeah. that's that really, you know, f- excellent game. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I haven't played it yet, but I've read a lot about it, and it, it looks phenomenal. Like. And yeah, and you know, or games like Shovel Knight, where it's like, you know, which I've played three different versions and I'm probably still going to buy it on my Switch. Shovel Knight is a game that took mechanics from multiple older games, but made something wholly new and created a compelling storyline with interesting characters while taking elements from Castlevania, Mega Man, DuckTales, like all of these random games. You know, Yacht Club Games is clearly a, a creation of its influences, which I think is really fascinating. And oh, I yeah. think you get a better sense of now, whereas, you know, games like Mass Effect and Halo and these big budget, you know, uh, first party AAA, they're good. And some of them are even really interesting. But I think there's something about working with a little and being able to do a lot that's more interesting to me now as a gamer. Also, because, you know... I'll always want my massively multiplayer online competitive gaming experience, but for something that's story-driven, I want something that I can take almost in bite-sized chunks. I, I'm not in a place in my life anymore where I can sit for 10 hours and play a video game straight. Right. I mean, I'll do it from time to time, but for the most part, I, I prefer to play for a couple hours, put it down, and then move on to something else or do something else. And I think these newer kind of looking back games, imperfect games, give us give you the ability to do that more than these giant narrative monsters that you have to sit with and get absorbed into, which I often do. I just think, you know, um, I'm getting less out of that as, as I get older. It, it's sort of like my point regarding theater versus music for audio engineering. I, I think part of the problem is with these big these big budget games they know they're going to be releasing a sequel yeah they know there's a game coming out the next year so instead of something has to be good about it right right so what are you going to do are you going to go the more challenging route and make it artistically viable and nuanced or are you just going to push the specs or you can yeah. make the graphics better and the, and the sound clearer and yeah. you know add fancy graphics and and all that stuff and it, it's obvious if, if you're thinking from from a business perspective you would obviously go with the more efficient but maybe you know more soulless yeah route well yeah i mean i think that's what killed the assassin's creed franchise for oh me. absolutely because i love the first i liked the first game i loved the Ezio trilogy like all three of those games were phenomenal and then when i got to three uh, with Connor and the Native American backstory and, like, the colonial U.S., like, I just, I, there was something that did feel soulless about it. Like, the story was okay. The story's always been okay. The mechanics were the same. The new mechanics didn't really hook me. And then I didn't play Black Flag. And since then, like, I haven't really touched them. And I think it's because I liked between one and two, and then I believe between two and Brotherhood, there were two-year chunks or more whereas and then at it you know activision is like oh you know every two years let's get it out and 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 the story you know never seems to be going anywhere no. it, it just it seems to be like a hodgepodge a conspiracy pseudoscience sort of slapped together and called intrigue 
Yeah, well, yeah. Like, I thought that the story, the modern story of them going back was interesting for the first three or four games. But then when it continued to kind of stagnate in that place and didn't really go anywhere, and they didn't really develop those characters that much, it was like, okay, then what? I'm, I'm just curious why they haven't done one, like, set in the near future. Right. Where the time place where they're using the Animus. I think that would be way more interesting. Right? Like, that's what I was hoping the movie would be. I still haven't seen it, the one with Michael Fassbender, but I was hoping... They may jump in and out, but for the most part, they'd lean into the future side of it. Because I think that's more fascinating. Who doesn't want to be an assassin in the near future? And it, it'd be so challenging to design that. Too. Right. Because how would you design, design the platforming for that? It could be anything, you know? Whereas when you're replicating existing cities, there's a certain thing you have to adhere to. Well, yeah, there's physical limitations. Right. And, and architecture. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you didn't have skyscrapers in ancient Egypt. Right. Well, I mean, it's what I loved about some of the PlayStation Generation Spider-Man games. Is like you felt like you were going in, through the city as Spider-Man. You could reference all these places. But after a while, that gets samey because it's like, okay, well, I've done this. Now what's next? Right. And, and, and I think that, you know, gaming has lost a little bit of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the onus... I mean, you know, to give to give credit to developers, though, I mean, the onus is on them to constantly come up with new settings yeah. and new interesting takes on it, and that and that has to be taxing. And you know, to Assassin's Creed, Assassin Creed's credit, yeah, uh, choosing historical inspired, right. bri- bri- brilliant, brilliant design. Because who doesn't want to see somewhere they've been recreated in a game, but being able to explore it in a different way? Because you're not an assassin in real life, being able to climb these buildings, right? You know, yeah, I mean, the first time you do a leap of faith in any Assassin's Creed game, it's such a rush. It's exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. or the first time you get to survey an area, you know, that that kind of stuff, I think. And, and I think that's why games like that have to be less frequent, and it's why I'm leaning into more older-style games, because while you don't have those moments, the music, you focus in more on the other stuff, like the music and the mechanics, because I love old-school 8-bit music. Like, I love um, a lot of... Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Anamanaguchi. They do, like, 8-bit music. I, I've heard the name. And yeah, so, yeah. like, I love that kind of stuff. They do chiptune music because I grew up loving the soundtracks to the Mega Man games and Castlevania and all that stuff. And so I love a return to that kind of sound design and MIDI design. And, and there are a lot of cats doing that now, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, it's totally awesome. Um, so, besides being a musician and being an audio engineer, do you find you take inspiration from other things besides... Just audio medium? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a fairly fairly heavy reader. Yeah. Uh, my, my dad was a, a former English professor at the University of Bennington. Uh, I, I, I tend to... I don't have a good vocabulary for the visual. Yeah. I tend to look at things and feel things. And right. Something I like is the idea of things existing without any sort of lexicon for describing them. Let, mm-hmm. let, letting things not be named. Right. Because when when you name something, when you when you put a word to it, it's it, it becomes defined. Right. It's something limited. It, right. Just so. So a lot of life is just kind of reacting yeah. to things and and not not sort of touching on the sanctity yeah. of life. By, by constraining it, just letting it be. Well, yeah, I think, and I, going back to music, I got a sense of that, this idea of, you know, like, you, someone could easily and simply label your music as folk, and, and, and that's it. But I think that does it a disservice, because it's not just folk, it's definitely folk influence, but this fact that there's a lot of electronic, 
you know, manipulation of, you know, mixing and, and layering. And then, you know, you use guitar, but you also do interesting things with dissonance and all this stuff. I think being able to defy simple explanation makes any art more interesting than being able to just put one word to it. Absolutely. I, I think the biggest inspiration for me personally is just people. Mm-hmm. Just relationships I've had, conversations I've had. I was in a bodega the other day, and uh, this mom who looked very tired, and mm-hmm. I'll blame her, it was 2 in the morning. Mm-hmm. She, Her kid was wide awake, <laughs> had a, a yellow plastic baseball bat. He's, like, brandishing it at the customers and everything. And she gets him a bag of chips, and he's just dancing of you know in like pure like attitude of gratitude yeah about these chips and you think about it and there are like f- these funny vignettes happening all over the place all the time yeah and you just see a small part of it yeah people watching is a thing i really enjoy doing and i think it comes with living in new york city oh, yeah. but it's this idea of just you can you know depending on how long you watch people you can see tiny little narratives happening that you may or may not be able to understand and, and most likely you won't. And most yeah. likely whatever you think about it isn't really the truth, but it, it doesn't matter that right. it's not the truth. Yeah. I mean, I th- it was one of the fascinating things about when Pokemon Go came out was because everyone was walking around and everyone was playing this game and doing this thing. Mm-hmm. But you would see people interacting and people work- walking together, walking alone. And, like, it was just a really cool uh, phenomenon to people watch in New York because there was just so many people doing it. It was like a community probably just sprung up. Out of nowhere, almost overnight, yeah. everyone was in state parks, in you know, hanging out on corners. Like my neighborhood, you know, there's a fair amount of kids and adults hanging out. We have a lot of restaurants in my neighborhood, but it was like in front of every poker stop within a three mile radius. There's groups of people hanging out, talking to each other. I met people in this neighborhood who I've never met before because of this like overnight community. I, I really wonder what the lesson from that is. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's still running, and I've still played it from time to time. But yeah, I really wonder what Niantic, the game, the, the the designers, the creative team behind it, really got from it, or even Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo must have gotten a ton of data on the kind of things that their their audience likes about either Pokemon or other things. Well, I mean, from from that angle, certainly too. But just that that was the thing, right? That that, that brought people together, right? Fascinating, right? And and I think it was less the Pokemon and more the community. Like I feel like if they'd created a Harry Potter game where you go to certain places and cast spells, you would have had a similar kind of community. I think it's interesting that this kind of um, augmented reality and uh, location-based gaming was very interesting. Like, and that was the community. Like, it had a larger community than I think most most video games, both computer or otherwise, overnight, and because oh, yeah. it was free, and it's just really interesting. I mean, I, I think, uh, and this, this might be reaching a little bit philosophically, but I, I think most people are just waiting for permission to do things, to feel things, to say things, to That's think true. things. Yeah. And I, I think everybody walking around, they, they see people that they want to talk to. That sure. They, that they just want to say anything to. Right. That they, you know, like, I want to run up and, you know, hug this person. I can't do that because I'll get a restraining order. <laughs> sort of, and, and you probably will. Is right. The thing. There, it's, it's grounded in reality, this, this sort of apprehension. But I think... You know, given the chance to be open, given the chance to connect, most people would absolutely jump for it. Well, yeah, and I think I noticed that also, like, when I would commute to Manhattan and I would be listening to music, like, I would try also at some point in my commute to take my headphones off and just kind of look around. But a lot of the time now, it's everyone looking down or everyone looking out. Like, nobody's really engaging with people, making eye contact, you know, 
like think about how people connected, you know, back in the day where it was a little smile or like just being polite in a public space where it doesn't happen as much because people are so focused in on their own technology and their own world. And there's that and the, there's also just a general it's it's subtle in some places and very obvious in others, but definitely a sense of paranoia sure. from people. Every you don't know what anybody is going to do. You don't know who anybody is really yeah. until until you've met them and uh, I mean if you just look at like the news headlines over this past year I mean <laughs> yeah. holy cats well yeah and also I think there's this idea that anxiety is not unfounded I mean this this idea that you know populations get bigger and you know you're surrounded by people and now you've been given a device that allows you to create your own tiny bubble of personal space in a public space you know, me as someone who's often very anxious, it's it's freeing to kind of be able to focus in on something that's not anybody else. Because when you don't have a phone or a book or a game system or whatever, yeah, like, or a fidget spinner or any of that stuff, it's one of those things where you have to focus on something. Whether it's the outside scenery, another person, you know, a, a very attractive woman or man, like, like this idea of looking out and, and admiring or noticing something happens less, I think, because we're kind of creating these mobile safe spaces. And, and Louis, Louis C.K. has a, a great bit on this. He, he talks about how people are just unable to be with themselves mm -hmm. and that people are, and, and I would agree with this, more or less terrified of being bored for even yeah. for even a second. Right. E even a second. But it's, think about like growing up, like you're younger than I am, but like I knew I grew up being bored constantly, you know? Oh, yeah. and, and it's this idea that now I don't know that I'm ever really that bored. Like I, I could be, but for the most part, I've always got something to do or somewhere to be or something to work with. I mean, me personally, I'll, I'll feel like that boredom encroaching and I start to get like panicky. Yeah. Like, I'll be, I'll break out in a sweat. And like just, I got to do something. Like, oh God, the world's moving I'm not like, and I think it's really fascinating. You're right because now there's really no, there's a, there may be reasons to be bored, but it's almost impossible to be bored because there's just so much interactivity and 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 available technology. Like as we spiral towards a depression in this country, I'm wondering what will happen if we're left without technology or access. Like what what this modern society will go through. I I don't think we'd be very well prepared for that. Yeah. In truth, I I mean, th th things are difficult now, and it's actually a historical trend. Most generations that are coming up at the turn of a century yeah. have it particularly difficult. Right. Uh, 1900s onward would be an exception, though, despite right. World War One and Two. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to think about yeah, that. Yeah, it's really <laughs> tough. It really is. But definitely plenty of stuff to inspire art in these this last year, for sure, at least. I, I'd say this is very similar to the Roaring Twenties yeah. right now. As far as uh, being able to create art and having that freedom. Um, before we wrap up, um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I know I mentioned Bandcamp and some other stuff, but where are you most active promoting your work and everything else? Sure. So I have two main uh, places I perform uh you can check me out at the gypsy parlor in buffalo if you are more of the online persuasion you can mm -hmm. find my demos at soundcloud.com slash akmgp mm -hmm. or at bandcamp.com slash akmgp excellent and uh um i really look forward actually to see what you do as you continue on because because we met when you were so much younger, finger quotes, but this idea that you were still in college and you were making such interesting music and now I can see the already the growth in two years being out of school 
I think music like yours that has an intricacy that a lot of pop music doesn't can only evolve. It can only change. And I feel like you're someone, it sounds like anyway, based on your taste, that if your music evolves into you doing something more pop or you doing something more punk, you won't have to necessarily create a separate project. This this music has a freedom to kind of grow into whatever you want the next thing to be. Right. It's, you know, I'm just being me. Right. Which I think is <laughs> something a lot of artists are afraid of doing. But uh, but it's definitely been a pleasure having you on the show. The last thing I'll request is if you would do our sign-off for us, which is music is life is life and life is good, so we can uh, sign off into that good night. Sure. I'm Devin Mullen. Music is life and life is good. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.